recording on the thing. I guess I'm introducing you, and I did not come up with an introduction. Am I doing the first? You do the first story this time, okay. right? Yeah, I think so, because it's an odd number. You did the first one last time. Why are we so bad at this? I don't know. It, it's not just us. It's like every podcast I listen to, just, they can never remember. It alternates every... Yeah. It's because you guys have the same intro every time. Hey, welcome to Legendary Tales. I am your host, Isadora Martin-Dye, and my co-host, who did a fabulous introduction for me this weekend, is sitting across the room, and he is a man of mystery, a man of few words, except when we're recording, <laughs> and a man who spends a lot of time in his bed playing uh, that stupid game with the... <laughs> With the fish and the bugs. With the fish and the bugs. It's Animal Crossing. That'd be him. This is a podcast about Animal Crossing now. <laughs> and me. his name is? I'm Adam Bloor, and I'm your co-host. Uh, somehow his introduction was much more flattering than mine. Oh, and I came up with it on the fly as well, so. So did I. Actually, I didn't. I spent a long time coming up with that introduction. <laughs> Several days. Several days. <laughs> I did no research this week. I just did. <laughs> just did to come up with a flattering introduction. Yep, I just exactly. Think, I, th- I just think, in my opinion, it flows a bit better when the co-hosts introduce the other co-host because you get that you get that weird like even stuttering. when I f- stop halfway through a sentence where it, I say Adam spends a lot of time in bed playing. Even when you completely <laughs> scuff it and make me sound like a weird sex pervert. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, because like you, you like I'm your co- I'm your host Adam Bloor, and then you like eh, and then you say your name, and I just think it flows a bit better. Okay, as we've just Con- proved, constant format changes. Uh huh. So yeah. Tales. Um, but one thing that hasn't changed is that on a week-to-week basis, we tell you about things that are legendary and that interest us and that maybe will help you win a pub quiz one day. We hope so. Because actually, as it turns out, they didn't help us this week win a pub quiz. Not at all. Not even not even nearly. No, even though there was a question on the first time a hot air balloon flight was done. And Adam, in fact, <laughs> just about two or three weeks ago, did a podcast on... I was screaming out loud. ...on blimps and the history of hot air. Dirigible balloons. Dirigible cur- balloons. Curses. Which, by the way... Worth listening to if you haven't gone back in time and listened to yeah. that podcast. That's been the one that's inspired the most debate. Has it? Well, not debate. I think just people being like, hell yeah, they should bring back blimps. Yeah, I mean, that's no debate. That's that's hard. That's cold hard facts. That's science, baby. <laughs> bring back hot air balloons. <laughs> um, so I, uh, yeah, if you haven't listened to that one, go back. But it didn't help us with our pub quiz. No, go listen to all of them again, actually. Yeah, do it. Do it. Oh, and a big thank you for everyone that did listen this week. Obviously, we super appreciate it. And um, it's it's a lot of fun to know you guys are out there listening. Mm. And if you do enjoy it, rate and review. Uh, now we have gone to nearly 40% of our listeners are on iTunes. Okay. Which is really, really cool. Yeah. Because iTunes has an ability to let you review. Yeah. Unlike a lot of the other apps that you listen to. So if you're listening to iTunes, this is your chance. It gives us a really good idea of what yeah. you guys are thinking. Yeah. Please go rate, review. We really appreciate it. Oh, and other news. We are now officially in the top 100 uh, history and true crime podcasts globally. That's pretty awesome. I'm beaming. You can't hear it in my voice, but I'm smiling real big. I know. It's really, really exciting. We, um, that's real. It's very, very cool. Yeah, very cool. Thank you for listening. Uh, tell your friends. That's how that works. And your parents and your grandmas. Yeah, and your grandmas. Don't forget your grandmas. You always always tell your grandmas. If your grandmas aren't listening to podcasts or your grandfathers, let's not be sexist. Mm, right. But if your grandparents aren't listening to podcasts, it's a really cool way for them to be educated, learn things. They don't have to be able to hear a TV far away. They have to read subtitles. You know, we're coming at them with information. We're helping you bond with your grandparents. Yes, yeah, so tell your grandparents. Maybe that should be our T-shirt. <laughs> 
Legendary tales. Tell your, your grandparents. grandparents. I like that. Okay. So, all right, you're up first, right? Yeah. And we're doing both of us, New Orleans. Yes, because at the end of last episode, we we both were like, well, New Orleans, New Orleans is a pretty cool place, which you knew. New Orleans. You know from personal experience. Yes, I it's one of my most memorable unfortunately holidays. Unfortunately, have not had the opportunity of to all go the places yet. you visited in America. Because how many states have you been to in America now? Like 16. Yeah. You have failed yet to go to one of, in my opinion, perhaps the best city in the whole of the States. Yeah. We love the World War II Museum. That's my husband who's listening in, and he's producer. reminding me how much I love the World War II Museum in oh, New, New Orleans. Orleans. Producer. Which is, oh, he's producing, not listening in. Um, and I will point out that that is a lie. <laughs> because the World War II Museum in New Orleans basically said that World War II started with Pearl Harbor. Uh, well, it did. Which is a Brit, let me tell you, is a real distinct historical lack a, of the previous many years of death and destruction. That's a, that's a thorn in the side for the for the English. Yep, yeah, that's the, understandably. I'm not. <laughs> World War Two did not begin with Pearl Harbor. Many amazing soldiers lost their lives long before mm. Pearl Harbor got bombed. It's true. You just chose to ignore it. Yes. Um. Okay, well, that was my rant. Thank you, honey, for taking me down that rant. <laughs> Adam's at first. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you going to steal all my... Because uh, I've realized I didn't put much history of New Orleans in here. Because... I didn't do any history of New Orleans in, okay. in my research. Um, I actually chose something that isn't really grounded in New Orleans okay. history or culture either. It's not like... I, That's I, fine, because mine is like what? steadfastly grounded in history. What? You did... Something that's not based on New Orleans, even though it's a New Orleans episode. No, it's from New Like these specific cases are from New Orleans. Um, and actually, there is a bit of. Uh, re- we'll get to it. So okay. I'm doing vampires, okay. which are not a uniquely New Orleans thing. Yeah. But I was doing some research and I found an organization called Nova, which I will talk about. It's the New Orleans Vamp- Vampire Association. People in New Orleans think they're vampires. Okay. And so I'll talk about them a bit. Not all people in New Orleans. No, very few people. Okay. Like, like 50 people <laughs> okay. in New Orleans. But it but it accounts for like a, a not not a tiny subsection of people in the United States as a whole. Delete all of that footage, please. Okay, it's deleted. Thank you. Um Okay. Go. <coughs> Vampires. This is how this works. Vampires, yeah, let's get started. Um so I'm gonna talk about two sort of legendary vampire stories from New Orleans, and then we'll talk about real vampires. Cool. So it's the mysterious case of the Carter brothers. John and Wayne Carter were dock workers working in New Orleans. They handled they handled seafood. They sort of were just kind of normal guys. Yep. Um, <clears throat> they lived in an apartment on St. Anne Street, um, and one day a young woman, not a young, not a young woman, a young girl, she was like 11 years old, Ran out of the house and she was covered in blood, uh, all the way, all down her arms, all over yeah. her dress. And she ran into some police officers, and the police officers were like, "Whoa, this is pretty wild. Um, what's going on?" And she said that the brothers had captured her and several other people, and had them tied up in the house. And every night would would cut their wrists and collect their blood in cups and then drink it. Um, and the police were like, "Oh, that's pretty messed up." Yeah. So they took her to a hospital. Got her bandaged up and taken care of, yeah. and uh, then went to stake out the apartment. They sort of tracked their movement, the brothers' movements for a bit, and found the best time to set a trap was when they went to work. 
So 10 police officers went into their apartment while they were gone and just waited for them to come back. <clears throat> Wait, I'm sorry. Didn't this little girl say that there were people tied up in there being yeah. bled out every night? So they went to the apartment and yeah. they found like 15 other people who were tied up. Oh, okay, up. okay. Um, there were only three other people who were alive in the apartment. The other like nine bodies were just corpses. Okay, all right, because you made it sound like they'd gone into the apartment and no one was there. No, so, so they went to check the apartment after she had left because she ran away while they were gone. Oh, okay. And um, did they, they rescue the three people that were yes, alive? Yes. Okay. They did take. They took them back. They took them to the hospital okay. as well. Um. But yeah, there were just like nine corpses. And okay. Three living people. Um. So yes, once they dealt with the living victims, <laughs> just so, just, they took them to the hospital. Sorry. You were so clear about the fact <laughs> that they taken the little girl yes, to the hospital. Sorry I about just... that. Um. <laughs> So they stake what out. What year was this? 1930s. Okay. So they stake out the apartment, set up a, a trap for them. Um, the brothers come home after a shift, and every source that I found explicitly states that these brothers were not physically imposing. Okay. They, they were like five six. Okay. 150 pounds, and they managed to fight off ten uh, armed police officers and incapacitated four of them, and. Jumped off of their balcony, because it's a little two-story right. flat. Yeah. And they jumped off of their balcony, landed like cats in the street, and ran away faster than any human person. So real vampire -y. Yes, very sort of vampire -y. Okay. Um, these brothers were not the most intelligent. They went okay. back to work the next day, where the police were waiting for them. Okay. And at this point, the police captured them, managed to capture them. They were sentenced to murder, and they were hanged in the town. Um... A few years later, or a couple of weeks later, depending on which source you cite, yeah. another one of their brothers or relatives was being yeah. indicted for something, and the public, the townspeople of New Orleans, were very much like, well, we want to figure out why they were drinking people's blood. Yeah. So they exhumed their corpses, um, mm -hmm. opened the coffins, and the coffins were empty. Creepy. Um, That's always the creepiest. <laughs> um... Yeah, and the legend is now that every year around Mardi Gras, they they come back and they, they take some victims. Well, there are people who were living in the house, according to the, the source that I found, didn't take note of sources today because I forgot that we did that. Um, but they claim that two shadowy figures were in the apartment when they got back one evening and they jumped off the balcony again, very oh, high okay. up, and then, and then ran away. So they're like... There are Carter brother sightings in cool. New Orleans. Cool. So that's a, one other little little vampire-y. I think it's funny because, like, Wayne and John Carter has got to be, and their sound and their description has got to be, like, the nerdiest-sounding vampires of all time. Yeah. Um, they gutted fish for a living. Yeah, they just, they did seafood. They just, like, worked, they were just dock workers. Um, it was interesting because, obviously, this is a legend. They have different kinds of stories. The other legend that I read was that they were very repentant when they were, that they were actually captured originally. Oh, okay. They, they didn't escape the first time. And they pled with the police officers to kill them because they were horrified. What they'd done. Yeah. I preferred the other version. Yeah, it's a lot more fantastical. But I do think you sort of get that with, with you know, you get that like with werewolf stories as well when people yeah. figure out that they're like, they're, they have uh, this side of them they can't control. Yeah. They, they want to stop hurting people. But the first version's obviously much better. Yeah. Okay, cool. The, oh, and this was sort of interesting. There was a bit of an addendum to the story okay. relating to the three living victims, specifically 
the there was one adult male and two adult women and then the young girl. Yeah. The adult male went on to murder four hundred and forty two people and dissolved their bodies and dissolved their bodies in acid. Is that like a real thing or is that like a legendary thing? I think it's just attached to the legend. Um because I couldn't find anything okay. relating to it. Probably should have dug a little I just thought that was interesting. And then the woman in the nineteen thirties willfully signed herself into a an asylum, which, as we know from our asylum episode, not a great place to be in the 1930s. No, but also if you've... Clipping. No, but also if you've been um, tortured. For a while. For a while. Yeah. Yeah, probably asylum yeah. seem all right. Um, but I'm interested, if any of you are familiar with the, the Carter brothers and their victims, if you know whether or not this person actually did become a serial killer... Once he I'm a bit them. of a true crime junkie. I've never heard of but, somebody murdering that many people in the States and dissolving their bodies. No, but, it's, it sounds a bit... Oh, I know H.H. Holmes is from Illinois. I was just but, about but to say... that's a very similar sort of M.O., isn't it? I was but, about to say, it's the same kind of period as H.H. Holmes. Yeah. It'll take a decade or two. So maybe they, maybe they just were conflated, and it was just a or bit of... H.H. Holmes move. To Illinois? To Illinois. That'd be madness. Maybe we should do like a radio drama episode where we we, we do like a, a reenactment of of this this period. With I've the been vampires. listening to uh, Unsolved Crimes or something. Mm. There's one on. I think you should just do a reenactment of the part that is brought to Louisiana by Illinois. Oh, got to be so boring. Maslow would be like, well, "Let's do vampires." Okay. <laughs> vampires forever. Um, I am listening to this thing called Unsolved Crimes or Unsolved Mysteries. God, I should probably know that because I've been listening to the podcast. But they actually do, like, they actually have professional actors coming in and doing the voices of, like... I've been really into this sort oh, of... Oh, gee, I can't believe you did. <laughs> I've been really into the, like, radio drama genre of podcasts, too. Like, recently. Like, while I was in France, basically all I listened to was new radio shows that are cool. really well produced and really well acted. So if you are an, a voice actor and you want to do some some stuff for us, send us a DM or an email, please. Oh, don't say that. Lawrence is nearly here. That'd be super sick. Oh, yeah, Lawrence could do it. Lawrence could do our vamp. Lawrence is a friend of ours who could is a, a trained actor. And, uh, Very English, though. <laughs> yeah, he might not find it too easy to do Louisiana vampires. All right, next so, one. So my next legendary vampire is Comte de Saint-Germain. Um, and this is a really interesting one that I didn't want to dig into too much in this Wait, like St. Germain the liquor? Like, there's a liquor? Isn't there an alcohol called St. Germain? Well, St. Germain apparently in history is not an uncommon name moniker oh, at okay. all. all right. So, I mean, yeah, probably. Okay. But this St. Germain specifically, uh, he started to appear in the 18th century among European royals, but he sort of came out of nowhere. Okay. His name didn't mean anything. He didn't have any, like, support, like, family support group, okay. like the royals generally do. Yeah. They have large families. Yeah. But his funds seemed to be nearly unlimited. Okay. And he was known for hosting these really extravagant okay. parties, as you would in 18th century Europe. With unlimited funds. He did claim to be 500 years old. Okay, cool. Um, which is a bit unusual even for Europe. Okay. Um, <laughs> for Europe. His, uh, his listed professions, uh, in several sources, he was... A well-known chemist, an alchemist, which I think we should do an episode on alchemy at some point. Yeah. It's a super interesting sub-sub-genre of science. Okay. A musician, a magician. Um, the alchemy is important because he is thought to have 
discovered the secret to eternal life. Makes sense if he's 500 years old. At that point, yeah. Um, and he was also, this is the interesting vampire tie-in. He's He claimed to be a prince of Transylvania, the illegitimate yeah. child of two, of a Romanian prince and uh, some okay. peasant woman. And he claimed to be their child. And he ended up in New Orleans? He does at some point, yes. We're getting to that. Okay. Because <laughs> he, according to, because he's, he's attributed to all of these famous people through history. Oh, okay. Um. People thought that he was Shakespeare and Francis Bacon and that he actually faked his death as Francis Bacon and then went to his own funeral. As Shakespeare? In disguise. Just okay. in disguise. The, I don't know why that one was mentioned specifically. I think it's just because Shakespeare and... The Shakespeare-Francis Bacon thing's really interesting. Yeah, because they had that... I don't know much about it. I Maybe uh, we should do an episode on that. We have a lot of ideas. Wow, we have more ideas for the next podcast than we ever have in the entire history of doing this yep. podcast. Um, some New Age people... Um, thought he was the avatar of the age of Aquarius, which I know almost nothing about that. I'm going directly off of my sources. The avatar in this sort of new age religion-y science thing was meant to enlighten the masses from their psycho-spiritual enslavement. So very, very new agey. People claimed to see him on Mount Shasta in Washington. I think it's in Washington. Um, He's also attributed for founding the Freemasons, which means he would be heavily involved in, like, American politics, like, with the Founding yeah. Fathers and everything. Uh, he also, Marie Antoinette claimed she he gave her a prophetic vision of the French Revolution, including the death of the king and queen. Oh, and that didn't do a very good, did it? No, it did not help very much. And he, at some point, it is believed that he reached physical ascension. Um, that That's a, that's, what is it called? That's reincarnation, but your body doesn't die. Oh, okay. So, like, reincarnation is you die and you retain some bit of whatever and you come back as yeah. the, you know, if you did well, you come back as a, in a higher yeah. class. If you did poorly, you are a lower class. Yeah. Sort and of. if you did the best in ever in life, you come back as one of my cats. Yeah, obviously. Um, but people did believe that he actually physically ascended to the point of living for, like, 6,000 years in the same body. Okay. <clears throat> 6,000 years? Yeah, he ended up living for a very, very long time. Well, that math doesn't work out. If he well, was no, only 500 years old and... It go, it's, so the thing is that people in Europe made fun of him okay. for this. Because the the, the lands the, the claims were so outlandish that there were like pantomimes done about him. And it seems that the stories probably from the pantomime and the stories that he told became conflated. And that he obviously didn't live for that long. Okay. But the pantomimes were like, oh, he was alive like... When a, he claimed, either he claimed or someone claimed that he was the ruler of Atlantis. So there, cool. there's a tie into another episode. You should yeah. listen to the Atlantis episode. Um, so he was actually the ruler of your mysterious island. And nice. he was around in the Sahara Desert when people were starting to grow civilization. So he's basically God if you don't want to believe in God. He, he's God, but he was around like before Jesus. Okay. It's very, very weird. I, I want to do an entire episode on him because okay. there seems to be a lot of information. Cool. But what's interesting for the New Orleans uh, story is Jacques Saint-Germain showed mm-hmm. up in 1903 in New Orleans, and he was good-looking, intelligent, threw massive parties, and um, was very, very popular. Yeah. He sort of hit New Orleans, like took it by storm, and everyone yeah. – he was sort of like the Great Gatsby of – of, of, like, the earlier 1900s. Okay. So he's basically what everyone dreams of doing one day, walking into a city and being like, 
I know I'm I, here. I know everybody and I'm gonna buy everything and, yeah. and we're just gonna party until we can't party anymore. Yeah. Which he, for me would take like twenty four hours. Everything I'm going to bed. I've been awake I've been awake <laughs> for six hours. I need to go to sleep. Uh yeah, but the the sort of interesting thing was he was known for hosting these really elaborate parties, but no one people claimed to never see him eat. Okay. He was always just drinking from this really elaborate chalice. Of course. And some some really well-trained, like, eagle-eyed observers noticed that there were paintings around the house. um, And he said, oh, that's that's the Comte de de Saint-Germain. That's my my ancestor. But they were like, he looks to be the same age you do. Because the paintings were never done of a man older than 40. Yeah. And they looked nearly identical. But he's like, oh, that's just my grandpa or whatever. Obviously, sort of stirring this idea that he was immortal. Yeah. Where the vampire thing comes in is he had a prostitute. He had a sex worker, sorry, over to his house late one evening. And she leapt from a balcony and survived the fall. And she ran to the police and she was covered in blood. And she claimed that he had bitten her on the neck. And that he had only been to, only stopped biting her when someone knocked on the door. Okay. And the police, obviously, early 1900s were like, that's a sex worker. Like, yeah. she's probably just lying. And yeah. they said... Uh, Jacques, you can just come down to the police station tomorrow morning yeah. and we'll we'll talk about this. And he never showed up the next morning. Okay. They went to his house and he had disappeared, leaving most of his possessions in his house. Um, they did some walking around and some investigating and they found <laughs> bloodstains on the floor as well as several open but corked wine bottles that were a mixture of wine and human blood. Okay. Um, Very creepy. And so everyone was like, ah, oh, this, guy, this guy's a vampire. Um, the house that he lived in is real. It is like an actual house in, in New Orleans. Yeah. It's on the corner of Royale and Ursuline. Okay. Street, you can go see it. No one lives in it, but all the taxes are paid for, but no one knows by who. That's cool. Yeah, and it's a massive, like, pretty nice house. In the Garden District, I assume. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You don't know. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yeah, those are sort of two legendary vampire stories from New Orleans. Um, one that I would like to dig into sort of the backstory yeah. of this crazy, like, figure who, for some reason, has just, ex- perva- like, pervade, pervade? Has been pervasive throughout yeah. history for whatever reason. That is kind of cool. Yeah. So, I got those two legends off of just, like, a ranker list okay. online. Because I am really bad at, well, actually, that's how, you st- that's how I start doing research is just to check lists and then find what looks cool and then dig in from there. But when I was looking, I Google searched New Orleans vampires. Yeah. And I found an article written in 2015 by Yan and Wang. Hey, you did cite one of your sources. Yeah, well, this one seemed important to, to write down. Okay. And the, the title of the article is Inside the Human Blood-Drinking Real Vampire Community of New Orleans. Cool. Um, and it was written for the Washington Post, so a pretty reputable... So pretty legit. Yeah. And it focused on the research of John Edgar Browning, who's an... Ethnographist, which is someone who studies the scientific description of peoples and cultures, including their customs, habits, and mutual differences. Okay. And at the time of this article, he was a post-doctorate, can- a doctoral candidate at Louisiana State University, and he was studying real vampires, quote-unquote, as a defiant culture. Okay. Um, and what he found was that people were claiming to be vampires. They claimed they had a medical condition that required them to sometimes drink blood three to four times a week. Right. Um, okay. Occasionally, if they were unable to fulfill this satiation, they would face 
really horrible physical like consequences, I guess. I assume you're going to tell me whether there's a real medical thing that. Mm, yes, I am going to tell you this. Okay. <clears throat> In the organization I talked about earlier, um, he was he interviewed quite a few people from the New Orleans Vamp Vampire Association, yeah. which, from what I could tell, the website I don't think has been updated since 2015, which is when this article c came oh, out. Okay. So I'm assuming that they were expecting a big influx of new members, right? But based on the website, they they did charity work. They fed okay. the homeless like three times a year. So like, and I expected three to go to, times a year. Well, they did like Thanksgiving, Christmas, oh, okay. and like yeah. And, I mean, day. and to be fair, the membership is tiny, it, yeah. And they're a non for profit, so it probably okay. they probably just couldn't float itself. Yeah. But yeah, so I was quite skeptical reading this article, as I tend to be with everything, and so was Dr. Browning, and he assumed that it was just some sort of derangement, yeah, uh, that it was just completely psychological, and that he thought that it was, he thought that's because it's very unusual to purposefully associate yourself with something from a horror movie, basically. Okay. Uh, and he was quoted in the article... I think I saved researching real vampires for last because I thought they must just be crazy and had read too many fictional work on vampires. Mm -hmm. I, there's obviously some conflation between vampires and just like goths. Yes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> what he did find um, was that they were generally very, not like secret organizations, but secretive because okay. you don't want to tell. These, they, you don't want to go around saying no, I drink people. No, exactly. And that generally the symptoms started coming about around puberty Around okay. pu like around the time people mm -hmm. reached puberty, and they said they just felt tired all the time. Yeah, and that they would accidentally find out that if they bit their lip or like cut their finger and licked the blood, that they would yep. immediately get this sort of boost of energy. Okay, and there were two different kinds of of vampires: sanguinarians, which are sanguine blood, and psychic. Don't say that like I know what that means. So sanguine is blood. <laughs> okay. Um, and psychic energy, that they thought that they were actually sort of. Like your like, show that you watch? Mm -hmm. Don't you watch a TV show where they're vampires and they're like empath vampires? Oh, and what we do in the shadows. Okay. Um, yeah, but they sort of like absorb your, not, they don't steal it from you. They just borrow, they like, they just boost okay. them up. Um, but they found, but they, these sort of, I guess these vampires found that they could achieve the same thing through like intimate activity like hold like even just holding hands or kissing another person okay which makes me think that it's like just like being sad or i was lonely. about to say it sounds like a kind of a depression and when yeah. you're with someone who's who makes you happy you're happy, happy or happier yeah okay that could be but that, that that never came that was never concluded in the article to be a you know a kind of depression okay they had several terms in their okay. in this in their community they used feed obviously for feeding drinking blood yeah uh, donors were people who would willingly donate their blood to vampires. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, do they do, like, blood banks and you yeah. donate, like, a pint of blood? It's like, no. So the 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 professor, actually, or the doctor, yeah. donated blood to one of his interviewees. And the dude just, like, cut him with a scalpel, like, on his back and just, like, drank the blood off of his back. God, that sounds unhygienic. And I was like, that's very brave of you. <laughs> like, I hope the scalpel was still in its wrapping. Oh, that sounds... And then, the, and then the vampire, like, cleaned it and, and wrapped it up and stuff. But I was like, eh. I think I just I'd be like, do you want my if you want my blood, like I'll just I'll just donate, like I'll just. just... Swear to God, unless they legitimately look like angel, I'm not going anywhere near that. <laughs> uh, and they also had the expression "coming out of the coffin" <laughs> or oh. "awakened," which is when you sort of tell people that you're a vampire. He found that if they could get enough of it, they'd refrigerate it and then add it to things like wine or tea, okay. and put it in their food. He interviewed a woman whose name 
I think this is like a, what is it called when you call yourself by something else? Alias. Yes, an alias. Uh, Kinesia, who found that she hadn't fed for a while and she had a super low heart rate mm-hmm. and it would jump up to like 160 whenever she walked around. She was suffering from massive migraines. She was passing out. She couldn't walk or go to work. And then her husband came to visit her on the hospital and she fed on him and she felt better. Uh, I don't know if she was just feeling anxious because maybe maybe she was just desperate to see her, her husband, maybe. I don't know. Is it like a low amenia, uh um, oh, like, like a low hemoglobin? Yeah. That's entirely possible. Did he not go into, like, a medical reason as I ju- why? I tr- so if you want to do more research, the, this man did do, like, a whole dissertation on real vampires. And yeah. I tried to get through it. I had a very hard time getting through it. But if anyone listening wants to go get the full scoop on real vampires okay. in New Orleans and Buffalo, because he did study, like, a clan in Buffalo as well. That's in New York, for anyone who doesn't know. Go read that. I'm just going based on what the article. Because I feel like there could be an actual legit so they, they, medical thing. And they're so here. I'll I'll I'll, I'll go okay. into it because I do actually have that written down. So it's like a psychological cure. People who study them sort of intimately think that yeah. it's just a super strong placebo that they've sort of convinced themselves oh, okay. that this makes them feel better. And it has a lot to do because people like ingest bitters and pretend that they like it or do actually like it. I guess, um, and. That's sort of... I guess there could be a thing about, like, self-harm at the beginning. Maybe, but it usually has nothing to do with... There's no history of it, really. From what I could tell in the article, there was no history of, of self-harm. No, I'm saying you said that they... That they realized that blood made them feel better when they, like, bit their lip or their finger bled. I'm assuming that was all an accident. I don't, I'm assuming okay. that none of that was actually intentional. Because, yeah. you know, and it, didn't, it didn't imply that it was. Interesting. Um, yeah, akin to... You know, eating something that isn't generally regarded as a food does yeah. stimulate your brain for some. Well, people. there is that thing uh, that where people eat loads of crazy stuff, right? What yeah, is that, that's that. It was the show. That's that show. Yeah, and there's probably something to do with the ritualistic component of feeding off of you know, that, that. It's like that that intimate. I can act. see that that would be yeah. like an intimate act of of like it's like trust. Ultimate, ultimate trust. Yeah, and this sort of exclusivity of drinking blood, like some people when. So when people drink like very rare wines, obviously okay. they, obviously they get drunk and then their but their brains yeah. do sort of like switch on yeah. and they're like I'm drinking something that no one else has ever consumed yeah. before, so I feel good in my brain about it. Is there any negative thing to drinking blood? No. Okay. Not at like, all. Unless the other person is sick. Unless the other person yeah, has yeah. a bloodborne illness. No. Okay. Um, and they weren't drinking like piles of it. It's not like you're getting. Because your body can also only hold so much liquid at once. Like, they were only... It sounds like they were only doing it, like, very... They do it three or four times a week, but it was never large amounts of blood. Okay. Like, when, when the professor, or the doctor, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, donated, he yeah. said that it was, like, a minute or two. And that the most uncomfortable part of it was just, like, the incision. Because he's afraid of needles. Dude, be a bit crazy <laughs> but to do that. He... he so he did this dissertation to sort of study the like what did, what were the words he what was the quote what did he say Adam's note strike again no I just forgot oh like defiancy culture that it's sort oh of, okay it's, it's sort of so he was just trying to get involved in it so he'd understand it well, it's, it's important to like look at it as like a redef- a redefining of, of normal yeah and my opinion is like whatever two consenting adults do yeah. behind closed like not even like in the Safely. privacy of their own home safely. Even if it even if it involves money or whatever as the transaction, like I don't care. It doesn't yeah. bother me one way or the other. 
Um, I was a bit squeamish when I read the title of the article, though, because I was like, ew, gross, people are drinking other people's blood. But as long as you have, like, know that they're... That's why I was asking as, whether it's safe to drink. As long as you know that they're healthy and you're healthy and it's like... It's like eating eating human. It's real bad for you. It's really bad for you. Yeah, we talked about that in the root group yeah. in last week's episode. Um, yeah. But the but blood is just, it's just iron and water and other stuff. Okay. So, right. I mean, you know, if you, I mean, if you're a vampire and you're not if you're holding 12, 13 people yeah, hostage and like, <laughs> like, let's be real clear. Don't hold people hostage. Find someone on a forum who you look. There's people out there that want to be eaten, so I'm sure you can find someone yeah, that's just right. you know, be safe, be safe. Make sure that they're healthy. You a be, lot of children listen to our podcast. So let's just be real clear. You, we are not advocating this. Be 18. <laughs> yes. Be 18 first. Be a legal adult and then do this if if, if you, you so absolutely desire. feel the need to. Don't pick it up as a hobby. No. That's New Orleans vampires. Sweet. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Slightly dark. I like it. Yeah, not super creepy. No. I, not, I mean, quite creepy. Creepier not, compared to like... <laughs> yeah, even compared to Rougarou's, it's a bit... Yeah, kind of creepy compared to some of the... Because the other side of that is if you buy into the fact that vampires as in the supernatural being don't exist, mm. then what you're talking about is a serial murderer's... In New Orleans, who, who killed people. Who are horribly creepy. Yeah, who are horribly creepy. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to do something, I think, less creepy. Whoa, that's a that's a, that's a far change. Yeah, I know. Uh, so let me do my sources, because I wrote them thank, down. Thank God one of us did. Nola.com, pathos.com, scribble.com. Scrabble. S- scribble. Are you sure it's not scribble? No, I'm not sure it's not scribble. It's... It's not, it's, uh, yeah, okay, it's scribble.com. Let's go with that. <laughs> Ghostcitytours.com. I got, by the way, I was found a lot of different stuff. Awesome. Vams.com. And then uh, an old obit from Dr. John called The Last of the Voodoo's. All right. Um, which I found on another website, but I didn't actually take any of the other information off the website. Just the obituary. The obit. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about New Orleans first. Cool. And I got this mostly off a BuzzFeed article. Of course you did. <laughs> okay, so the city was founded in 1718 by Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne. And it was a melting pot from the very beginning of, like, cultures and people. And it was early French settlers who married Native American women. African slaves were brought over, and they would often marry Native Americans or the, or the French white people. Uh, around 1763, France ceded Louisiana to the Spanish. So then there was an influx of Spanish. Spanish yeah. And then, so, and, and when they did that, they adopted a Spanish style of racial regulations, which allowed communities of free people of color. Oh, okay. Um, so it wasn't just black slaves. Yeah. I mean, um, undoubtedly there was racism, but it wasn't as strictly... It, there was definitely not strict, like, definitely... black versus white. It mm. was, like, French, Spanish, Native Americans, mm-hmm. free slave, uh, f- formerly slaves that Former have been slaves. freed, yeah. pe- people of color that were born free, and slaves. Okay. So, in 1803, they returned to French rule, and it was immediately sold within the same year to Louisiana Purchase. So, within, like, 18 months, they were owned by the Spanish, the French, and then the Americans. Mm-hmm. So, they're... It was just a, such a mishmash of yeah. cultures and belief systems. Uh, roughly when the Louisiana Purchase happened, 20% of the city was made up of free people of color. 
those people are generally in this period called mulatto. Mm-hmm. I always thought that that was more of a mixed race word, a, a word like a, not a great word for mixed race people. No. But actually, it just means free people of. Originally, it meant free people okay. of color and it in just this area. A slightly derogatory. Yeah. Term. Okay. Although it, it really depends on who you're talking to and what you're reading. Of course. I was trying to figure out w- whether the word mulatto was a word I could say. Mm. And I'm just, so I'm just putting that out there that it's, yeah, it's certainly how the woman who I'm focusing on, which is Marie Laveau, that was how she was described. That's how she identified. Mm-hmm. So I think as long as I go with it, it's hopefully her, not too pl- in, problematic. In her, in her context. During the first half of the 1800s, it, New Orleans was one of America's wealthiest cities and the third largest. And um, up until the mid-1800s, most of the inhabitants still spoke French, or, or solely French. And there was a huge slave trade in New Orleans, but they also, like I said, it, it, this slave trade was taking place alongside a huge community of black people, mm-hmm. as free black people, as well as those people also partook in the slave trade. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely not like a cut and dry city. No, no, no. And it's still not. I no. mean, if you go there now, it's just this riot of culture clashes and liberalism, I guess, of just. Yep. I don't know. I've never been, so I can't. It's very can't colorful. That. Yeah. In every respect, it's a wonderful city. Okay, so I'm going to talk about voodoo, which I think is primarily associated with. Uh, New Orleans. Yeah. Well, the um, Caribbean part of the culture, right? Well, or... we're kind of going to get into that, which is, I also didn't, I knew that there was something called voodoo and I knew there was something called hoodoo. Mm-hmm. They're two different things. Yeah. So I'm just going to give you a quick, like, breakdown of what the two differences are mm-hmm. so that then you can kind of understand what voodoo is because it's kind of easier to see it alongside something else, if okay. that makes sense. Yep. So voodoo is a religion while hoodoo is folk magic. Okay. Okay. Um, voodoo is an established religion. Whereas hoodoo is just like, hoodoo is almost more what you do if you just go to a magic shop and cast a spell. Okay. Whereas voodoo is more of an actual is hoodoo religion. Is is hoodoo like the Western? Did did hoodoo come over to Louisiana with voodoo, or did they like did hoodoo evolve? So from voodoo, voodoo came indirectly via Haiti. Mm-hmm. And hoodoo came directly with the African slaves. Gotcha. Okay. Now, it, I have to say, because Mary Laveau is known as a, hoodoo, a voodoo practitioner, mm-hmm. but what it says here is hoodoo is much more associated with Roman Catholic faith okay. than voodoo, which is its own faith. Uh-huh. And Mary Laveau actually was a staunch Roman Catholic. So, so technically, I think she was a hoodoo queen. Okay. But I'm not really sure if that's like a... I got this from a fairly reputable source mm-hmm. but it seems to be that they are intertwined but very but also catholicism is firmly intertwined in both these things too which i didn't really realize i don't think no i didn't although subsequent to that i think about when i went into like voodoo shops in new orleans and there are like catholic saints and figurines mm. alongside the hoodoo and voodoo practitioner stuff so voodoo has no central authority or scripture right so most religions are based off a book mm-hmm. or a I don't know the bible being the biggest but not just that most religions you think of even if they're a modern cult yeah usually the person who's leading the cult has written a manifesto mm-hmm. um it's community based 
Uh, it's not necessarily group based. Okay. So you don't. It, it's uh, it's an individual experience. Well, like you don't you you don't meet once a week and go to a building. No, and... although again, Mary Laveau did meet once a week with her followers. Well, but... She was a Catholic. But so there's like that's what I'm saying. So there's some like voodoo is not a structural thing. No, it's uh, passed on orally from generation to generation, and yes, sacrifices do occur in order to evoke the spirit world. Okay, um, usually a goat or a chicken. No, that's fine. I mean, we eat goats and chickens. I'm not like turn them into sausages. Yeah, just you can't really. Mm. Um, so let's tell you about a couple of major voodoo practitioners before her, because mm-hmm. while she is the person that has perhaps made it most famous, mm-hmm. there were she was trained. Okay. Well, actually, so there's a lot of I will say this. For me, this was a really not in depth researching job. Mm-hmm. Because it seems quite linear. Maybe it's, I don't know. It seems quite linear. Okay, to, like, to get to Mary Laveau, you mean? Is yeah, well, just the whole thing is quite like okay. this yeah. happened, then this happened, and then this happened. And this is where we are today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Dr. John, who goes under many aliases or versions of that, but basically, Dr. John was the first like voodoo king. Okay. And I. He was also the first person, What the thing that seemed to come up quite a lot was he was one of the first people to monetize it mm. versus just practice it. So okay. he would sell voodoo stuff. Um, and voodoo itself, the, one of the reasons it mixed with the Roman Catholics is because obviously the people were mixing. But the people that were practicing voodoo saw that mostly the white people who were Catholic were getting more luck than them. Mm. So they started kind of mixing the two. Uh, there's also this idea that maybe they mixed it because the uh, black cultures were not allowed to practice their religion. So by mixing it with Roman Catholic, it gave them more freedom to practice their own yeah. religion. Also, so there's a lot of parallels between Roman Catholicism. And it seems like Dr. John was one of the first people to kind of take advantage of this mm-hmm. and almost go the other way, which is he was one of the first people to start bringing the white people. Uh-huh into believing in voodoo. Okay. Like making it more accessible outside of the individual culture. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read you a little bit about his, briefly about his life, mainly because his obit that I read, The Last of the Voodoos, which was, I don't know, early 1900s when he died, is just an amazingly written, like I read this whole piece, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't who I was learning about. He claimed to be a son of a Sengali king. So he can claim to be a prince. And he had his, like, I guess someone, like, there's some markings, like, cuts that would be done to royalty in Sengali, and he had those on him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he came over a bit like your vampire dude. He came over and made a bit of a splash. Yeah. Um, even though he came over as a slave. Okay. Um, and I, I briefly went into the culture of Obi, like, as in Obi-Wan Kenobi, mm-hmm. which was kind of this, like, shaman-like character that would... And even the slave owners recognized who bought him, recognized that he had like some form of mystical power among people he dealt with, and he and actually had a practice in New Orleans that slaves would buy and trade their freedom all the time, mm-hmm. their freedom all the time. So it wasn't unusual that he managed to buy his freedom. Managed to buy his freedom. Um, basically, from what I could figure out, I think he almost got given his freedom in exchange for just helping keep. People healthy or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So 
He had his carriage and a pair worthy of a planter, and his bloodied saddle horse, which he rode well, attired in a, a gaudy Spanish costume, seated upon an elaborated, decorated Mexican saddle. At home, where he ate and drank only the best, scorned claret worth less than a dollar the litre, he continued to find his simple furniture not good enough for him, but he had at least 15 wives, a harem worthy of Bocabar Segal. White folks might have called them by a less honorific name, but John declared them his legitimate spouses according to African ritual. One of the curious features in modern slavery was the ownership of the blacks by freedmen of their own color, and these Negro slaveholders were usually savage and merciless masters. John was not, but it was by a right of slave purchase that he obtained most of his wives, who bore him children in great multitude. Mm. Finally, he managed to woo and win a woman, a white woman, who might have been, after a fashion, the Sultana Validi of Sagalo. On grand occasions, John used to distribute largesse amongst the color population of his neighborhood in the shape of food, bowls of gumbo, or jambalaya. He did it for popularity's sake in those days, perhaps, but in after years, during the great ep ep epidemics, he did it for charity. Even when so much reduced in circumstances, he was himself obliged to cook the food to be given away. So he was like living life large. Mm -hmm. He'd bought all these women who were his kind of quote unquote wives. Mm -hmm. And he had a huge house and all the rest of it. However, he did not know how to read and write. And actually it's a really sad tale because he asked someone to teach him how to write and they taught him how to sign his name. And then one day they gave him a deed but basically he signed and he signed everything he owned away to this man. Mm -hmm. So he was then reduced to like poverty. absolute poverty. Um, and he went to go and live with one of his children. And then he started getting addicted to buying lottery tickets and uh -huh. he lost any money that he made because he was still making. Yeah. Cause he was still the money, but he started playing the lottery and, um, he basically died in absolute poverty, having been caught up buying the lottery tickets and lost mm. all his money. So that Not was great. sad. He also had seizures. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So he was the first, like, voodoo king, Yeah, I guess. He was succeeded by a woman named Santa Didi, mm -hmm. who was the earliest high priestess of voodoo. So, the, so voodoo has a central sort of... So... Not like a... It seems to be a popularity contest. Okay. As in, there was a story I read, and I, I don't know if I even included it in here, because uh, Marie Laveau, there was a woman who was trying to become the high priestess, mm -hmm. and she, like, put a statue outside her house, like, declaring of Marie Laveau with, like, I don't know, basically, like, negative propaganda, um, and she made someone take it down. But for a brief moment, it started working, and she started losing influence over the city. Okay. It, it does seem to be a... Okay. Just basically a popularity contest, right. and there are people competing. Okay. Constantly. Okay. So, she uh, Didi was known for the interracial voodoo ceremony she held. She was famous for her love and sex charms, and for the power of her hexing. At ceremonies, um, every man, woman, young or old, wore right handkerchief tied around the head, which is still a voodoo practice that's considered that happens today, um, and. I read somewhere, and then I could not find any inf more information about it, that she lost her power because uh, Marie Laveau hexed her. Oh. And sent her insane. Okay. So she was actually Marie Laveau's teacher. So now we're going to move into Marie Laveau. Alrighty. Because that's where we are. 
I'm going to read a quick quote from her uh, obit in 1881. Although Marie Laveau's history has been very much sought after, it has never been published. The secrets of her life, however, could only be obtained by the old lady herself. She would never tell the smallest part of what she knew. So I thought it was going to be kind of a rich tapestry of history. Mm -hmm. It was not. She's very secretive. (laughs) Really secretive. And actually, uh, we'll get into it, but that's how she made her money, was Mm -hmm. she kept people's secrets. Okay. That's not helpful. Um, that's how she made her money was, so that's how she made her money was keeping people's secrets. So, and I'm going to put this out here now. There were actually two voodoo queens named Marie Laveau. And which one did any of the stuff or was any of the ones that I'm talking about? No one knows. No one knows. Great. Uh, the early, early history is Marie Laveau one, mm-hmm. for sure. Marie Laveau two, we'll get into, but it was probably one of her daughter's. She didn't have enough time or energy as she got older and she maybe wanted to trick people into thinking she was younger than she was or had this secret to youth or whatever. So they were both kind of running around being Marie Laveau. Mm-hmm. Maybe. That's what I would do. Um, maybe. And they looked very similar. So uh, th- there is evidence that they were slightly different personality types. Okay. So her, let's call her Laveau 2. Yep. I think was seen as being a bit more kind of personal gainy and showy offy mm-hmm. about it, whereas Laveau One was more charity and okay. So it's there's some contradictory stuff in here, and and that's why. Okay, obviously Marie Laveau is legendary. Like she is perhaps the embodiment of what New Orleans represents in culture, um, and and not just in culture but in history as well because she was a mulatto she represented a lot of the stuff that made new orleans unique at the time as well um she was a healer an exorcist she was a dealer in hexes and according to some people she was also a hairdresser Uh, which just seems to be one of those weird things that there's no evidence no (laughs) evidence at all that she was a hairdresser but why mention it but everyone seems to accept that she was a hairdresser but at the same time there's not much evidence she didn't write she was illiterate Mm -hmm. so she didn't write stuff down so everything that was written down about her was basically based on the legend of her Mm -hmm. versus any of it coming from her or her children right so uh, there's a lot of gray area in her um she was born in to a woman named Marguerite Don, Donna Cartel, and her father was a local well-to-do politician and plantation owner named Charles Laveau Trudeau. Weird. Kind of an awesome name. It rhymes, at least. Uh-huh. Uh, but he was married to another woman at the time of Laveau's birth, Marie Laveau's birth, in 1801, maybe, or maybe 1990. Uh, 1797 or maybe 1805 cool whatever and making her a product of adultery however she was actually to all accounts well loved by her father uh she was born free even though her mother was a a slave at the beginning of her life her mother was freed by trudeau Mm -hmm. um i'm gonna call him trudeau versus laveau laveau trudeau because laveau was i'm gonna go with marie laveau Mm. um she actually lived on Trudeau's land. Um, she was educated and schooled. I, I found conf- she doesn't appear that she knew how to read and write. She didn't really write, read or write in her public life. Mm-hmm. But it does appear that she was at least given the opportunity for some education. 
And also she would go to, she was fully taught in Catholicism. Now, some people say that she was trained by Dr. John and Dee Dee, but other people say that her mother, as a free woman of color, would have been very well versed in hoodoo and voodoo, mm-hmm. and her father, as a Catholic, would have also had his own thing. So maybe her brand of voodoo, which is this mix, mm-hmm. was actually just a product of her parents. 19, uh, 1819, she married Jacques Paris, a free person of color from Haiti. And Haiti is where voodoo came from. So that was, again, um, at St. Louis Cathedral. And that's actually the first example of written record of her. Okay. Is her marriage. Kind of weird. Some some researchers say they didn't have any children. Uh, but baptismal records show that they had two daughters one in 1823 and one in 1824, but then I also read something else about her having another one, about her having another daughter who was, but they were baptized, that wasn't their age, so uh, one record states that the daughter was baptized at seven years old, which would mean that she was born in 1817, which would have made Laveau 16 and two years before her marriage. So there's a lot of weirdness there. but it gets even weirder because both her daughters unfortunately died and then her husband disappeared. Huh. Uh, there's no documentation of his death, although one of her daughter's records of baptism, which she was baptized at seven, it was after the husband disappeared, say that he was dead. Mm-hmm. But there's no, but actually, there's as much of evidence that he just left her as okay. that he actually died. So here she is in like 1825, 1826. So she's about early 20s, maybe. Um, Early 20s, have already lost her husband and two children. And she fell in love with a man named, okay, Louis-Christophe Dussemerli de Glapon. He came from a prominent New Orleans family, very wealthy, and he was white, white gentleman. And they were not allowed to marry because it was forbidden by law, but they did cohabitate and live together for many, many years. Now, some people say that they had 15 children together over 20 years, um, but it's only been recorded that they had seven. Three of these died in infancy, um, and only two of them made it to adulthood. Mm. So for a woman who made her money looking after people, yeah, she had terrible... I mean, I guess maybe those statistics were fairly normal at this period. Yeah, early 1900s. But it seems pretty terrible to me that you would lose that many children. And interracial couples were totally normal, pretty much, in New Orleans, and the same with children that were Mm -hmm. interracial. Um, So there wasn't too much of a scandal about this. It was fairly well accepted. It just gave her access to... He gave her access to a wealthier white community, so she was able to make more money, Mm -hmm. basically. So there's no evidence as to when she started practicing voodoo. A lot of people say, obviously, she... there's no evidence as to when she started practicing voodoo. A lot of people say that voodoo is a religion that she would have been born with. And uh, the voodoo queen happened sometime in the 1820s, around the time that she started uh, shacking up with Gallopon. Mm-hmm. Oral history says that she was mentored by Dee Dee, Marie Sap. Salopop? Salop? Oh, actually, Marie Salop may have been the one that she sent insane. But I couldn't find any more information on Marie Salop. Okay. Um, 
and also that she worked with Dr. John, where she learned the art of Grigri. Now, Grigri is a big part of voodoo tradition, mm-hmm. and it is basically hex bags. Okay. Um, it was originally from Ghana and associated with Islamic traditions, mm-hmm. but then it would have been brought over with the African slaves. Do I know that word because of supernatural? I think so. That sounds very... Like... So, Grigri is came to the United States, States with the enslaved Africans and quickly adopted by practitioners of voodoo. However, the practice soon changed and the Grigri were thought to bring black magic upon their victims. So, like, the witches' hex bags mm-hmm. and... Um, slaves would often use Grigri against their owners, and it can still sometimes be seen on their tombs. Like, people still go hang Grigri bags on slave owners' tombs. During this period, there were also reports of slave cuttings, drownings, or otherwise manipulating the Grigri to cause harm. So voodoo isn't an entirely clean religion. Mm. Like, it's not... It's not benign. No, it's not about just... Um, however, in Haiti... So where voodoo came from. So hoodoo came from Africa. Yep. Voodoo came via Haiti. Mm-hmm. So in Haiti's culture, Grigri's are usually good amulets. Um, and often in Louisiana, Grigri's are seen alongside like Catholic charms yeah. as being a good amulet. So it really, I think it depends on how you make the Grigri. Okay. Or what you do you put into it as to whether it's a good or bad thing. But she learned it from Dr. John, who was, is famously like the Grigory master Mm -hmm. of things. So she brought voodoo into the mainstream. Dr. John started it, but she brought it into like total mainstream Mm -hmm. ability. Um, And she was the first to incorporate most of the Catholic elements into it. She, Use swaths of incense, much like the Catholics were doing in her rituals. She also combined standard Catholic uh, prayers with voodoo songs and prayers. And so she really did kind of mix the two. And she believed, she identified as Catholic. Mm -hmm. She identified as a voodoo priestess in the Catholic religion. Okay. Now, from what I read is that actually if you dropped the voodoo part of it, you could get really far in the Catholic religion by being the, like, amulet dude of the Catholic uh-huh. religion, but she always stuck close to her voodoo, cl- stuck closer to her voodoo roots okay. than that. So she was never 100% for any... In like, one or the other. Yes. Um, although I think she would say that she was Catholic. She went to church every mm. Sunday. So on Sunday, she also, in the Congo Square, she held celebrations weekly, and... That was because the Code Noir in the 1800s granted Sundays and holidays off to the New Orleans slaves. So even though they were slaves, they got every Sunday off. Um, they would spend their free time cultivating, gardening, fishing, um, so that they could get goods to trade and sell. And then after they had all worshipped at St. Augustine's Church on Sunday, they would walk over to Congo Square with their goods and set up a market. Mm-hmm. And that was so it became like a community center for people of color, whether they be slaved or free. Mm-hmm. She would go to the gatherings in Congo Square and sell her grigri bags, offer advice, uh, partake in rituals and things like that. She also then started singing, dancing, performing, um, conjuring the great serpine, uh, serpentine spirit, serp- serpentine, serpent spirit. Snakes. Yeah, snake spirit. And becoming filled with the spirit of Iowa. 
which is Iowa. Io, I, uh, Iowa, Ioa. I don't know. And she also would bring her own python to this called the Grand Zombie, mm. um, who was a, a bino python Ew. who she'd bring to these festivals. Gross. And um, yeah, so she would go everywhere with a white snake. Although, again, this is more of an oral legend versus anyone actually mentioning it. Yeah. For real. The other big thing that she became most famous for was St. John's Eve, which was a celebration and a ceremony that happened in the bayou. And she actually, and this is where it's Murray too probably invited white people to come and witness the ceremony. And it's still held every year in her honor. Mm -hmm. Uh, St. John obviously being a Catholic priest. Um, but it also ties in. It's kind of symbolic of everything there is to do with voodoo. Okay. Because it ties in with the solstice. Okay. So it's 23rd of June or something like that. So. It, yes. Um, is that solstice? It's 21st of June. So it, or maybe it's somewhere around there. But yeah. like it's tied in with Catholic. Yeah. They yeah. tie it all in together. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of this big mismatch of cultures. Um, and they would go down to the bayou and hold big dancing rituals. Uh, some people say orgies. Mm-hmm. The Times Picayune reporter wrote about it that the Kabbalah of St. John's Eve was for years a topic of discussion in New Orleans and even attracted national attention. In barbaric color and African heinousness, nothing ever surpassed it. Thousands of curiosity seekers, journalists, freelance writers who chanced to be at New Orleans at the time of this jubilee would go out into the swamplands after nightfall and walk through the rough paths eager to glimpse the orgy. It is generally known that Marie Laveau welcomed whites to this particular Saturnali. And it is often remarked that it was actually a decoy with the real worship of the voodoo taking place at some other time in a remote region of the swamp near the shanty, which has started to become the summer home of Lemurie. So it was kind of everything you'd... It was a night where voodoo was everything you'd kind of think of. Mm -hmm. Sacrificing, orgies, all the negative things that you might yeah, think of yeah, yeah, to yeah. do with voodoo. And... Her magic, because, I mean, really, that's what we're here to talk about, isn't it, magic? Yeah. There really was none. <laughs> well, I mean, no surprises there, really. But there were a few bits of law. One belief is um, that if people had been crossed, I guess hexed, they can remove the conjure by submerging themselves in the spot where Marie Laveau, too, reportedly drowned. Okay. Another little bit of law is that the wishing spot located in the lakeside of the bio, where they do the St. John's thing, People tossed coins and dollar bills and burnt candles into the hollow of this tree in the hopes that their wishes would be answered. And in another hollowed out tree in Congo Square, known as the Wishing Tree, Marie was known for leaving plates of jambalaya and money for the needy in there. So you could kind of go there and get free stuff. Mm. She was famous for being able to help people. So people would go to her and they would say, you know, I need help with this trial that I've got coming up or and you put so-and-so's blackmailing me I need a spell to make it stop and she was also by all intents and purposes a very good human too she would perform acts of community service she nursed yellow fever patients posted bail for free women of color and visited condemned prisoners to pray with them before they died so she was just like this good member of the community and I'm going to read you a little bit about that was written about five years after her death about really where her power came from. Because mm -hmm. she was powerful. She did definitely make stuff happen. There is no doubt about the fact that, like, people would go to her and ask for stuff to happen, and it happened. But 
so large a number voluntary came and confided in her that she became the mistresses of the secrets of many families. For the most influential families will have secrets and the discovery of them they own dread. This knowledge and her own shrewdness were the mysteries of her power, just as they are the power of others who claim to lay supernatural influence. As was to be expected in such a woman, she was discreet. Her secrets died with her. What she knew was the unwritten history of New Orleans, more interesting and far more startling than anything that's been told. And that was written in 1886, so only oh. five years after her death. Wow. Basically, it was well known that, or not well known, but essentially most of her power came through blackmail and manipulation. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she knew too much, she just knew too much. Right. About everything. But people were also, she was really discreet about it, mm-hmm. like famously discreet about it. So I'm imagining we're talking things about affairs, abortions, yeah. that kind of stuff that she helped with. And she was just so powerful and influential. And she knew so much stuff about people that she really could coordinate the city. Yeah. I think is what it seems like happened mostly. Mm-hmm. And not in an evil way. Because no. I think when you think about someone blackmailing and manipulating people, it, it sounds evil. Mm. But I think everyone, she was a, she followed through. But she was just almost, like, as far as I can figure out, that's what she did. She politically coordinated the city. Mm. So one of the reasons people say that she started off doing this was as a hairdresser, people would come and talk to her. <laughs> and that's how she started off this reputation. Yeah, where she, yeah, yeah. Um, so she passed away on June 15th, 1881. And uh, it wasn't reported until two days later. However, a number of people claim that they spotted or after they'd apparent she'd apparently died in the city and had conversations with her kind of Jesus-y mm. um, after she died. And they were believed to, her remains were believed to have been interred in the Lavo Glapon crypt in St. Louis' first ceremony. However, that's not really clear that that was in fact what happened. Um, what is clear is that people still believe that that's where she is and they give her even today, you go see pictures of her grave. It's surrounded by offerings and talismans, and uh, people draw three X's on her mausoleum, um, hoping that she'll grant you a favor or a <laughs> thing. A boon. Yeah, it's also illegal. Don't do it. You will get imprisoned if you're found to be defacing her tomb. The misfits, not the misfits. Yeah, the band, the misfits. Yeah. they tried to dig her up. Yes. So in fact, that was something that kind of came up. There's a few different bits of pop culture that I'll briefly touch on, but. Um, honestly, her pop culture legend is extended way beyond. Some say her spirit still walked the ceremony uh, cemetery. One man claimed he was slapped by her spirit <laughs> after he made a disparaging comment. Other experience cold spots, rapid breathing, headaches. Lots of people feel that they have been touched by her when they visit her tomb. And people have also claimed that it glows green or nude ghosts can be seen dancing around the tomb. Mm. Um, however, others believe that her remains are locked inside St. Louis Ceremony Cemetery Number 2, inside a vault called the Wishing Vault. People also draw crosses on the marble at the Wishing Vault, offer coins, holy cards, fruits and flowers. No one's really sure which of those two places she's buried in. And obviously then it became kind of even more whatever because there was her daughter parading around as her. Mm-hmm. So when they say they saw her in the city after she died, it was probably her daughter dressed as her. Right. Um, there's no, it, it, there's no real clear indication as to which of these daughters. One lived until 19, one died before she did. So one died in 1862. So it probably wasn't her. The other one lived 
until 1897, so about 16 years after she died. And that's kind of, I guess, the one that most people associate as being Marie Laveau too. Mm -hmm. But she was famously very anti-voodoo. Mm. But that may have just been a thing. Yeah. I don't know. So it's kind of cool, though, to make yourself feel eternal, seem eternally young that yeah. you're, you would send your daughter who looked very much like you. It's a good idea. Um, all right, pop culture. I briefly started looking at the Marvel thing with her which is a huge canon. I'm not really into Marvel, mm, yes. but like I didn't realize how much. I was like, I'll just go have a brief look and figure out. <laughs> but no, there's like a whole thing about her yeah. and vampires and how she drunk vampire blood to stay young forever. Oh. Um, and then someone in the Marvel Universe killed off all the vampires, so she got sent back in time to go and get more vampire blood so she could stay young, which Sounds is where cunt. she met Drankula. Um, and then she imprisoned Drankula to take his blood and then tried to... Uh, it was a whole thing. Yeah. Sounds convoluted enough to be a Marvel story. It was a big thing, and I thought it was going to... I That was my ignorance. I thought it was going to be about two seconds of, like... It never is. No. Most famously and recently, she has been portrayed in American Horror Story by Angela Bassett. In Coven, right? In Coven, and then later in another one as well, briefly, where she died. Coven is, in fact, one of the only ones I've watched more than about one episode of I American do, Horror Story. I do not like that show. But Coven is actually much lighter, I think, than the other ones, and okay. less weird in some ways. It's not, it's not the weird thing. I just don't think it's a good show. <laughs> no. Well, she is um, depicted as an immortal priestess in Coven. Mm -hmm. So Coven it's is told in flashbacks. Okay. And she's seen slicing snakes open and summoning the dead out of their graves and things. All of which she was supposed to have done right. in real life. So I'm going to give you a quick how to influence a jury according to Maria Lobo. Oh, okay, I thought you just meant in, in general. Uh, no. Does that have to do with wearing glasses? No. Oh. You need one packet of Saskar Sangrada, ten drops of black art oil, one packet of John the Conqueror essence, one success candle and seven pieces of calunda flowers, and you sprinkle one teaspoon of castor sangria, sangred, and blend it together. Put this mix on a fresh piece of white fabric or parchment into a square and hide it under your mattress seven days before you go to prison or jail. On the morning of the court appearance, pull the packet out from under your mattress and set it aside. Now take some of the John the Conqueror essence and mix it well with the rest of the castor sangra, and burn this on a lighted piece of pure bamboo wool charcoal. As it smolders, light the success candle and read Psalm 7 aloud. Then hold the previously prepared packet over the candle and burn it completely. Just before the courtroom, put the candeluna flower in your pocket or purse, and the juror will be more inclined to be lenient. But it was a good example of, like, candles and Psalm 7, yeah. and it, it's the that mix of... of where do you get John the Conqueror essence? Don't know. It's a really good question. And what's, what is a success candle? Because I want a couple. I, I feel like a success candle would do well in my life. Yeah. I also read that there was a whole thing about, so the the other voodoo prince priestess that I talked about, she had a lot of love spells. And one of them was that, like, as someone's coming in the door that you want to, like, whatever, you put a clove in your mouth and suck on the clove. And then you have to throw something. I didn't write it down. You have to throw something out the back door. Okay. Like a water, some like yeah. distilled holy water. 
You have to throw it out the back door while looking into the house. You have to throw it out the back door. And then there was a hole. There's a <sighs> hole. But it's interesting, like, reading these spells because mm-hmm. they really were a mix of... Catholicism and... Catholicism and... That's interesting. Voodoo. Hmm. So did that's Mary Levy. Did you know Nicolas Cage has a grave in New Orleans? Is he in it? No. <laughs> so he bought a house... I found this out when I was doing some research. Yeah. He bought a cursed house. Yes, I do know about his cursed house. He lived in it, it for three months. Also, I will say that he went then bankrupt, didn't he, and has been trying to sell his cursed house from then? I think so. Uh, so he moved out Yeah. after like three months and was trying to figure out how to, because the curse apparently is meant to follow you from this okay. house. And he asked some, some, I don't know if it was a voodoo practitioner or yeah, whatever, because I, I didn't write it down or really do any research. I just got a cursory glance at it. And they said, well, you need to build a grave in for yourself in the style of something or other. Right. It's a pyramid, mm-hmm. and it has some Latin inscribed on the front, and it's his grave in New Orleans. I, I think he might have to be interred there once he dies. Graves in New Orleans are a really interesting thing mm-hmm. because it floods. Yes. Um, also because they had a really bad bout of yellow fever, which is what took most of her children. Okay. Um, that like, and the Spanish flu ran through New Orleans in a really, really bad way. So they actually exceeded the amount of grave space mm-hmm. really, really quickly. So they had to put together like, I don't know, like shanty town graveyards, essentially. Not shanty town graveyards, but they were building graveyards at a rate quicker than yeah. people were dying, just. Um, but they don't like burying people because when it floods, the corpse just flows to the surface. Yeah. So what they have is these big mausoleums. Mm-hmm. And it's so hot there that they actually put the body in there and it kind of naturally cremates cremates in the heat in Mm. the mausoleum. And then when the next person in your family dies, they go in the same kind of slot. Yeah, that was the uh, Carter brothers actually were interred in their family mausoleum. And then they were obviously, when they were exhumed, they weren't exhumed by like the definition of digging the grave, but they were just pulled out of there. Yeah, so even the slots is, like, New Orleans, I guess, is one of the few places that does this kind of natural cremation. Mm. Um, so, anyway, graves in New Orleans a big thing, and actually when you go visit one of the, they take, to, you see them all over, and they're yeah. really kind of elaborate and yeah, amazing-looking things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd have the opportunity to be, obviously, because you're building a, you're yeah, putting, you're putting, yeah. Up, uh, putting up a structure. But it was one of the problems with Katrina, which was um, the amount of dead bodies that, Washed up. Washed up. What a horrible period of human history. It's, I tell you, New Orleans for so many different reasons, but one, I mean, food, culture, music, whatever. Also learning about Katrina. We went, we went a decent period after Katrina, but not like. I mean, they're still suffering. Yes, we went probably, it was one of the first holidays we took together, so probably about 12 years ago. Mm. So the whole thing, I mean, I want to go back really, really badly. I want to go back. Yeah. Um, I actually sent mom there. Oh, did you? Yeah. I happened to send her there on the same weekend as Pride. Nice. And I put her up at Bourbon Street. Uh, <laughs> so she had a blast. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Like, I got just continual photos of her with men in rainbow thongs, which is... <laughs> her favorite thing. ...how my mom rolls. Um, <laughs> it was purely coincidental. And I say this because I would have totally sent my mom there during... Like, because New Orleans at the time of a party, no one parties better than New Orleans. Mm. I also sent Steve there at the same time, my mother's ex-partner. Hilarious. Who is definitely not the kind of man that's happy to run around (laughs) French Street with a hurricane and uh, take photos with scantily clad... Are you telling me he didn't didn't have his own rainbow thong? I don't. I can't see it. In fact, I think I have a picture where it's mom 
surrounded by semi-naked Elvis impersonators. Hell yes. And st- in rainbow wigs. And Steve is standing there still in a white full-length white linen shirt, jeans, and boots, <laughs> which is just like his uniform. Yeah, that's, that's how he dresses all the time. Uh, even in the middle of the bayou. Yeah, even in the middle of the summer in the south of France. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, anyway, so New Orleans, totally go there, guys. Yeah. Um, so what are we going to do next week? I started doing research on some alien stuff. Okay. Um, like aliens or like alien? Like, like as in, are we do, like, are you taking the entire topic of aliens? No. So I'm I'm doing one specifically. I've ri- I wrote down the note here. Okay. Evil, evil Deros beneath the earth. Okay. Was the quote that I I grabbed while I was looking at like Roswell aliens or whatever. Okay. Um. So maybe something alieny. Maybe. Well, I've vaguely talked about doing the crystal skulls. Yeah, you could do those. And that's got an alien thing connection to yeah. it. If you believe Indiana Jones. So maybe something alieny. Okay, we haven't done aliens. Something extraterrestrial. We haven't done that. No. Let's do extraterrestrial because that sort of gives us a lot. So we'll do something extraterrestrial. Okay. Cool. Sounds good. Awesome. Um, We're also going to try and drop a mini episode in about Legends of Argentina this week. Yeah, something that isn't Nazi-related. Something that isn't Nazi-related because I I do feel that while it was a really important topic to cover and something that is really interesting, it didn't do a lot of the legends associated with Argentina are, are tales. Yeah. Which is hard to do a whole episode on. Mm-hmm. Um, but Worth maybe, mentioning. But maybe we'll do a couple of Argentine tales. But, cool. Um, and maybe you will see that appearing. In between this episode and the next one, or maybe? Yeah, we're out of what we call banked episodes, which is where we always try and have at least one or two recorded so that then if, like last week, we have a technical hitch, we're not. Yeah, we're in episode debt. We're not. Uh, we're not going to get it up on time we at least have one or two banked so we're going to try and bank a couple in the next week or two mm-hmm. um so i don't know quite when the argentine one will drop but it will be out but it will be out and you'll see it just randomly appear in your little thing so if you don't subscribe you'll never hear it you'll never hear it so you gotta go hit subscribe because if you don't subscribe you'll never know it came out because it's not like you can check up on a wednesday and find whatever the episode is that we just released nope so subscribe rate review and bye bye